This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. You're listening to the 68th episode of the Planning Exchange Podcast. Today, we're talking with Clark Davies. Clark is a senior executive with breadth of property development, construction and business management experience. Clark started as an urban planner in Melbourne, moved to Brisbane in 95 and Sydney in 2002. He then went further abroad to Dubai in 2007 and more recently to Manama in Bahrain, which is essentially the trading centre for the Persian Gulf. Clark is currently the Chief Development Manager at Edema, which is the Bahrain real estate investment company. Welcome to the show, Clark. What a unique career path you've had. There can't be too many planners out there who've managed to live and work in some of the most unique places that you have. Can we start by discussing your inspiration for moving across to Dubai in the first place? Was it work that took you there? I guess for many Australians, the experience of Dubai is limited to a stopover in the magnificent airports at Dubai and Abu Dhabi on the way to Europe and beyond, and the extreme heat that hits you in the face when you get off the plane. So I'm interested to hear a bit more from you in terms of what it's like to live there and um, your experiences, because it just seems like a truly fascinating place. So welcome to the show, Clark. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Uh, thanks, Peter. Yeah, look, uh, living in Dubai is is has been a really interesting experience. Um, what motivated me, and it was my wife and I and the children, to move there um, was really just the sense of adventure, sense of fun. It wasn't necessarily about career. It was just about um, having having a life adventure. And, and it sort of it was born out of the fact that, obviously, as you mentioned, I started my career in Melbourne. Um, <coughs> I was working with uh, Ratio Consultants at the time, and they wanted to set up an office in Brisbane. And so I volunteered to move from Melbourne to Brisbane. And we lived in Brisbane for seven years and then moved to Sydney. And we lived in Sydney for five years. And just the process of moving into a new city is really interesting. Um, you know, the people you meet, uh, the, the sense of newness. You, you tend to live like a tourist for the first couple of years. And we really enjoyed that process uh, when we moved to Brisbane. We really enjoyed it again when we moved to um, Sydney. And so the opportunity to do it again overseas um, was was um, you know really appealing to us and we we were so happy in Sydney. I had a great job in Sydney, but we just thought if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. And as it's turned out, we've been in Dubai for um, about thirteen years. As you mentioned, I've just taken a role in Bahrain, which has been um, I've been doing for about a year now. And um, my wife will soon join me in Bahrain, whilst the kids uh, will either be working or starting in Australia or the UK or somewhere. So what it's done is it's been very interesting. It was just really about having a life adventure. And I I spoke to the family recently about that moment that we decided to move to Dubai. And they were universally saying what a great decision that was because we've had such an interesting and diverse life because of it. So hopefully that explains our thinking. Sorry, Clark, you're a Melbourne boy. You went to RMIT. Your career started in local government, I think the city of Chelsea. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, so I did, I mean, just to give you a, a very quick synopsis, um, yeah, I was at the city of Chelsea and then I did a year at the Shire of Diamond Valley based out at Greensboro and then I did a year at the city of Brighton 
Um, and then I joined Ratio Consultants and was essentially with them for close to 10 years. Um, and there was a group of us that that um, moved from Ratio into ERM, which McCotter, as it was known then. By that stage, I had moved to Brisbane and I did a project management course with a, with a property development focus and very quickly got a job with Delphin. And it was really the, those five years that I spent with Delphin that set me up. Um, you know, I became from a, I changed from a town planner to a development manager. And the, the essence of that is that you focus very much on the business plan around the property development instead of just the, the design and approvals. But my focus has always been the front end of the project, which is setting up the business plan, setting up the design and setting up the planning controls and then, you know, rolling out the development. Now, Clark, I also wanted to ask how um, how you and Peter got to know each other because I understand you guys go way back. Was this um, was it the the red jacket or was it the was it fireside chat? I can't remember which one it was now. No, we we go way back. We actually ah. studied together at RMIT, so we <laughs> we we met um, uh, in first year of uni, believe it or not. So. Um, and, and from there, we've been friends ever since, and we obviously collaborated together on a number of uh, 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 professional exercises. You know, uh, we wrote articles educating Sarah. We did uh, the interview series, um, Fireside Chat, and uh, that's just been part of the story. We've also had many weekends away down at Lawn and, um, and many nights... Uh, talking about uh, Clark, I'll just put in but you forget the uh, social events we used to organize we organized the first planning ball that's which was the precursor for the Vipla ball we had several of those that we privately organized that's and right. uh, I think you looked after the in, your, in your previous career right. was that Clark the DJ <laughs> yeah yeah well you know We've all had many careers, some of them successful, some oh, of them not. Yes, um, Clark and I ran an interview series called Fireside Chat, which ran in the 90s. And, um, Clark, did you just want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a great thing. We, we essentially interviewed people who had an interest in planning issues. And so, you know, we, we generally interviewed the, um, the Minister for Planning in Victoria at the time. We did, you know, three or four of those, or the shadow minister. We interviewed the deputy prime minister of Australia at one particular time. We interviewed um, media personalities, and generally anyone who had um, had some kind of involvement in the planning industry. And you know, the, they went; they were extremely interesting. They were fantastic. People like to express their views, and we were we would always um, show them the questions first, and 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 show them uh, the transcript before we before we published it. So it was, a, it was a pretty gentle but a nice way to get people different views across about planning in Australia and Victoria. And I, I thought it was fantastic. And, and not dissimilar to how we run the podcast now. So I now understand where all Pete's interviewing skills come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Pete was definitely the brains behind it. I just did the, I just did the work. Well, well, you're the charm and the good looks, Clark. So anyway, we've got to get back to our questions, I guess. So, Clark, what have been the turning points in your career? You mentioned before, obviously, the, the changeover from being a town planner and moving into a project management role. Would you say that's been, I guess, the most pivotal turning point for your career or have there been others? Yeah, well, working as a town planning consultant um, and particularly on the statutory side, I found that I was essentially the project manager of the approval process 
So, you know, it was the planners who were getting the architect organised, telling him how to design his building so it complied with the regulations. You know, we're getting the traffic guys, the landscape guys, the environmental guys, and getting all those submissions and, and collating it for the, the approvals. Um, all planners know that process very well. Um, but I, I, was, I was really interested in the whole development process. And so doing the project management course at, at Queensland University of Technology, um, when I moved to Brisbane, was really a key turning point. And I was, I was really lucky to get this job, uh, a job with um, Delphin, which was called a um, town planner slash development analyst. And so for the, my first couple of years there, I helped put business plans together, supporting the, the large master plan communities. And that really gave me a strong understanding of, you know, the cost base, the revenue base, and, and really how to make projects fly. And, um, yeah, I, and I loved it. I, what I loved about it was um, the fact that every day at work was different because some days you are talking about design, some days you are talking about with local government getting approvals through. Other days you're talking about infrastructure or building construction. Other days you're talking purely about financials. Um, you know how are we going to get a return on on our investment? And 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 other days you might be talking about a marketing program, branding, communications, etc. So I, I really like the diversity of the role um, because every day it seems like there's there's something new or or, or another aspect. So you're, you're using all all different parts of your brain. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's strategic, uh, sometimes it's design related. Uh, so yeah, uh, that that's that's where that was the defining point in my career, um, changing from a pure planning consultant to to a development manager. Now, now Clark, you've worked on um, large master plans across several continents. We're talking uh, the Middle East, the subcontinent and Southeast Asia. Um, it's a very broad question, but what sort of things have you picked up uh, in terms of the cultural differences between all those different places and how you is putting these projects together? How do you approach a different place? Yeah, I mean, it's always based on the market. Um, you know, who's going to buy your product? I mean, every property development is the same. It's, it's You're building it for a purpose. There's going to be an end user, whether they're buying, whether they're renting, um, uh, who are they and what do they want? So really, you're doing some market research around um, the, the catchment. The population that's going to use your product, so that's that's your starting point, and then obviously you you design the the development, and uh, you obviously make sure that you can build it at a, at a cost that you can sell it or lease it and get a return. So the, the fundamental principles are the same. What's there's two there's two interesting things. One in Australia, uh, we do we are very professional, and we do property development, we do town planning, we do design we do it extremely well and so when an Australian my experience has been is that when an Australian goes overseas he or she has got a lot to offer because we um, work in a relatively small market we're very restricted with uh, the amount of uh, revenue we can generate our population is quite small and so we're very careful and we're very considered and so we we do have a lot to offer when we when we move overseas and, and do development overseas the other thing is that um, uh, the sorts of master plan communities that we design in Australia are generally very low density, whereas the markets, when you start to move overseas, you understand that there's um, there's there's bigger populations, there's there's bigger markets, and so you can just ramp up the density enormously. So 
you know, whereas you, if you look at the standard Delford or one of the other large developers, um, you know, a lot of it's detached housing, you know, around a little town centre with a little bit of mixed use. Whereas some of the communities that we've designed and built, you know, one minute it's a greenfield site or it's a, it's a sandblock and the next minute it's got 100, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 storey buildings on it. So you're going from zero to 100 in really, really quick time. And, and I suppose that's the, that's the biggest difference working overseas uh, is that the, the, the catchment is bigger, the market is bigger, and so you tend to go for a much denser, um, bigger, bigger um, project. Is that pressures of urbanisation uh, in those places, Clark, that, you know, people are flocking to the cities or is it something else? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a good question, Pete. You know, we, we, you know, we're planners and so we come from a central place theory where, um, you know, cities are denser in, in the core where the, the land values are uh, justified. And, and there's, a, there's a city evolution in, in Australia. Our cities are a couple of hundred years old and they've evolved, you know, in Europe. They're a couple of thousand years old and, 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 and they've had that evolution. It's really interesting, as I said before, to, to, to go to a new city, you know, whether you're talking China, whether you're talking um, um, in Asia or in the Middle East and Africa even, where they're going from greenfield site to a, a development that's got a whole range of high-rises. And the process, we are, what's the thinking around that? And um, the thinking is that there's a population base and, um, and, and, a, and a business plan that can underpin it and make it happen. I don't think people choose to live in high-density apartments if they can afford not to, but some people don't know anything else and so they see that as, as um, what they aspire to. Um, so, yeah, uh, hopefully that answers your question. So what about um, through Dubai and Abu Dhabi, as I know you've done a lot of work there in the past as well, what, what's been, I guess, your experience of the evolution of those cities over time? It seems as though um, there's been significant change in those cities over the last, um, you know, 10, 20 years. How, how have you seen that change transition? Yeah, well, um, Dubai's an interesting case because um, Dubai very much models itself on Singapore. And Singapore is is a is a trading hub. It's it, it's a it's a transport hub. It's a trading hub, and um, you know it's well located to to serve a lot of a lot of the population around it. And Dubai's the same. You know, Dubai's got the Middle East. It's got India. It's got Africa on its doorstep. So it's, it sees itself as as a hub, and it really built on that. Um, the way the way that it works here, obviously, it's uh, it's uh, you know. It, it's a ruling royal family who are the owners of land and, and they gift land to various people for various things. And so the way that property development has evolved here and the way that cities has evolved here is the royal family has said, okay, in the case of Nikhil or Ema, some of the bigger developers here, I say, I'm going to give you this very large plot of land and you develop that and you develop that and you can sell part of that land off the third-party developers. You can to develop it yourself, and that way you generate revenue, and you can continue to exist as as as, um, as a property development company. So that's the way that they created wealth. They would give land to developers. Those developers would develop the land, generate revenue, and then use that revenue to expand their operations, either in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, or, or overseas. A lot of the developers here now are operating overseas. So, and 
the to go back to the the the, the planning framework that that exists in because it's the royal family gifting land um, they generally do it to um, uh, give it to people that are well connected equally well connected and so there's a lot of influence used and there's a lot of um, favors given to make development happen and then that that gets a city so far that gets a city started but then once it become, gets to a certain threshold, then you need to put a planning system in place. And in Dubai, it's, um, they've got the Dubai Municipality. In, uh, in Abu Dhabi, they had the Urban Planning Authority. And my interpretation of why those um, organisations were established and put in place, it was because the leaders of, the, um, of those cities didn't want to have to be influenced by important people and make planning decisions that they later regretted. So they said, let's let's set up planning organisations and make them the most powerful, um, uh, have the most the, the most powerful say in how our cities evolve. And both Dubai and Abu Dhabi have benefited from those in, in that there's been some controls and some standards put in place. So that, that's a little snapshot of how it's happened. So, so how many years ago would, would that framework have come into place and interest? Look, they've always had um, various degrees of framework. So we're talking 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. but it's about putting um, the layers of sophistication around that. So even, you know, we're talking about Dubai and Abu Dhabi, but even some of the work I did in Pakistan and the work that I'm doing in Bahrain, there's always a framework and and. The, the only thing is that, you know, for example, where I'm working in Bahrain at the moment, it feels like to me um, the planning system in the 80s in Victoria, if you know what I mean. It feels like it's, it's <laughs> 30 or 40 years behind where it needs to be. But the, mm-hmm. the other way that w- what happens is, for example, so we're doing a, ma- a large master plan community in Bahrain, is that we make our own control. So we've got fosters and partners doing the master plan. We're currently going through the design guidelines at the moment. We're preparing those um, because we're going to do some development ourselves and we're going to sell off to third-party developers. And so we're having a say and we're going to we're going to be the planning authority ourselves um, uh, to determine how other developers on in our master plan develop their product. And that's that's been the consistent theme in Dubai in Abu Dhabi and in master plans around the world. It's not this, the, the authority gives you an overarching approval and then you become your own mayor, you become your own town planning authority and you then control how that development takes place within your um, development. It, it, it sounds like there is similarities to Singapore, Clark, with that sort of independent planning authority guiding at arm lengths from the government. Uh, with you, you experience in master planning major communities over a couple of decades. What are the sort of changes you're seeing in the last five to ten years or, and, and sort of what trends are accelerating? Um, yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, clearly uh, environmental. Um, you know, we as an industry, um, you guys, myself, all around the world, we're just becoming more and more aware of um, sustainable energy creation or how design can influence um, health and lifestyle. And so we are more and more focusing on not the design, um, uh, you know, our building design, our, our street design, our, our open space design, um, the materials we use um, and, uh, and, and the technology around the building, whether it's water, whether it's power generation, um, 
I mean, uh, working at Mazda City for five years. So Mazda City is 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 its objective is to be the most sustainable city in the world. And uh, but it also another part of the Mazda business is energy, um, solar power, wind power, etc. So uh, energy creation and um, different buildings and different plots and different developments being self-sustainable, like generating power either through wind or through water um, or through sun and water reuse, um, even on a, on a community level or even in a building. Um, so that's where I think the biggest um, change has occurred in the last in the last decade. And it's, it's interesting looking ahead, I would be saying um, what's the next big thing is going to be transportation and our community is becoming more and more mixed use. Um, uh, and so the form of transportation, you know, European cities are being taken over again by push bikes and it's just fantastic. Um, the car is becoming less important. And um, so I think that transportation in the future, um, certainly the last decade, it's been the environment in the next, in the next uh, decade will be transportation. And Clark, that must be very, very challenging in the Middle East, those environmental goals, because the weather, the climate is at times very, very hostile. Yeah? Yeah, it is. So we're in summer at the moment. So, you know, the temperatures are well into the 40s most days. But we've also got, I mean, it is, it is seasonal over here. We have, we have a, a, a winter, a spring and fall. And... Um, uh, you know, winters here are, are gorgeous because it'll it'll be mid twenties in the middle of the day, and, it, and it'll be sort of 10, 15 degrees overnight. So um, it, it is it is seasonal, um, but you're right. Uh, obviously, um, keeping people cool, air conditioning uh, uses a lot of power, and um, obviously you use a lot of water as well. So there's desalination plants. Um, so water reuse is extremely important here. They do a lot of cloud seeding, et cetera. So, yeah, but but really making buildings efficient from an environmental point of view so that your air conditioning is not on 24-7, you're actually using less power, the, the building can stay cooler. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technological advances around uh, glass and around building materials um, to make the buildings uh, efficient. That's really interesting. Um, I also just wanted to go back to that point. You started talking about um, solar and wind power and um, those alternative energy sources. Are you seeing, um, I guess, large solar farms and wind farms being constructed or where where, where is it at? Yeah, so so, um, I sort of alluded to that Mazda is not only building a sustainable city, but they are are very much... um, pioneers in sustainable energy creation and both investing in them and and building them themselves um, and so for example um, Mazda is an Abu Dhabi company so just and just to make that clear the United Arab Emirates um, has different emirates uh, they're like mm-hmm. states so Abu Dhabi is a state so Abu Dhabi is like the state of Victoria and Dubai is like the state of New South Wales etc so um uh, Mazda is an Abu Dhabi company, and they recently tendered and won um, the the right to build a solar farm in okay. Fort Dubai, and the and the, they've already built one in Abu Dhabi, and they've always they've got several oh, they've got many solar farms in Africa and, and some of the Polynesian islands. But the interesting the interesting um, 
development in the one that they're building for Dubai was that the price that they won the bid on was equivalent to coal burning uh, fire ge uh, power generation. So the price of solar, creating solar energy, has now come to the point where it's very close to equivalent to you know coal burning electricity, which is obviously a very efficient way to mm -hmm. produce electricity. And I think that's that's the key point is that that, that wind and solar and other forms of, of energy creation, the, the price of it is coming to a point where it's now competitive with our traditional form of uh, power. And so Mazda was was um, was really front and centre of, of a lot of the developments that were occurring there. Clark, you work with a lot of um, international firms, mega firms. How, do you, how, how does that go with working with, a, I think you said you're working with foster uh, planners and architects, um, how is it working with those mega firms? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, I said it before and I'll say it again that I, I think that um, the way we do planning and property development in Australia, we're, we're really we're really at the top end of, um, of of those fields. And so we can, you know, we stand tall. Um, our consultants and, and the work that we do is very, very much on a world scale. So it's interesting working with... Um, Internationally, you know, guys with international reputation. You know, I, I mentioned Fosters, but you talk to uh, WATG, who are known resort designers. You've got uh, SOM, who designed the Burj Khalifa and are really known for um, uh, um, really known for their tower development. And and some of them uh, that I've worked with, you meet them, and they are fantastic. You just realise these guys are world leaders in what they do, and they've got that reputation for a reason. And other times you're disappointed. You know, they're just they're just stock standard consultants who are just doing uh, doing um, uh, what you would consider a sub substandard job. But the interesting thing about these guys now is that um, so call it call it just over ten years ago, I did a bit of a roadshow in London, meeting with with a lot of the architects and them putting forward their portfolio and and telling us what they've designed and what they've built. And 10 years ago, a lot of the big architects, you know, they would have had work in the US, they would have had work in Europe, and they had a lot of, you know, design competition wins, you know, for work in China or work in Russia. Um, but their, their portfolio, whilst impressive, was still limited to the, to the Western countries. Um, and I, I did it again recently, about a year ago, we were in London and met with a, ho a whole bunch of the same sorts of firms. And in the last 10 years, these the big architects, the big the big uh, consulting firms around the world, um, they've built things in China. They've now built things in Russia. They've built things in Thailand, and so their portfolio of of work completed and the experience of the people now working in those organisations is absolutely amazing. So you know, again, talking talking about Fosters and partners, they've got office in Sydney. Obviously, they've got offices in in. In uh, the US, they've got offices around Europe. They've probably got staff of about a thousand people, and their head office in the UK is, is amazing. It's a couple hundred designers. They've got studios um, for making videos. They've got a band room for making um, uh, soundtracks to their videos. They've got three D printers so they can produce um, models of their developments. Uh, and and the amount of work that they've done around the world is 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 unbelievable and um, obviously each time you do a new project you get more experience and you learn more and you can bring that to the next project so I think that's the the big thing over the last 10 years is that there's been 
a lot of emerging nations spending a lot of money on property development and um, the big design firms and the big engineering firms have been there to help them build them. And so there's a, there's a lot of good knowledge around uh, property development. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, Clark, I also wanted to ask you about COVID. Um, how has that affected you in your current environment and, and what are you seeing in the broader area in terms of its impacts? And I guess probably a follow-on question to, to that is how are you seeing um, the world, I guess, change in response to that? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing time, isn't it? There's no doubt about that. And how the world is going to change, I, I'm not quite sure. I don't think anyone really knows how, what's going to happen. We were, we were seeing um, a lot of trends in development, you know, the, the WeWork organisation, the co, co-worker space, um, the, the mixed-use development. And, you know, I, I was always a big advocate for mixed-use development and maybe just to talk around that a bit. When, when I lived in Melbourne and, I, you know, you guys are still there, when you live in Melbourne, you tend to live um, regionally, you, know, you tend to stick to your part of town. You don't drive across town that often. Um, when we when we lived in Brisbane, Brisbane was a smaller place, and you tended to embrace the whole city because it was easy to get around. When we moved to Sydney, because it's a very dense city and it's very difficult to get around, you tend to live very local, and so you you needed to have all the facilities around you. And I think that as cities become bigger, and I know Melbourne's getting busier, um, people tend to live much more locally. And that means that you need to be able to work, um, um, educate, have medical facilities. So uh, all, all within, you know, a very short distance. So I'm a really big advocate for this whole mixed-use mixed use, um, uh, lifestyle where you're living and, and um, you've got your workplace nearby. And this is where the whole um, co-working environment, you know, the, the, there's facilities being built where you can actually live and work in the same building and you, your workplace has got, um, it's got childcare, it's got coffee shops, it's got, you know, um, services. So um, I, was, I was a really big advocate for creating mixed-use communities. But it's interesting whether COVID, one, one analysis might be that COVID could stop that mixed-use environment, that we actually want to withdraw back into our private space a bit more because for the, for the because we don't want to risk our health by living in this mixed-use environment. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully, um, you know, this, this mixed-use living that I think is a, is a fantastic way to go will continue. But uh, one negative of COVID could be that we become more withdrawn as a community and we live more virtually than in reality. Like that reminds me of an article, a story, a short story you once wrote called uh, Planet Groovy, where the people on Planet Groovy couldn't understand. They wanted to be with people all the time and they couldn't understand people from Earth who sort of tended to 
you know, not, not associate so much. Yeah, it's, I'm amazed that you remember that. I remember that article too, and it was it, it was it was you know one of my finest pieces of work. But yeah, it was I, it, it was it was interesting, and the and the the basis behind that story was people wanting to gather together, and and I I still think that's very much the case. And you know, in 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 designing our communities, I, you know, I I want open space with with things in them, whether it's public art, whether it's sports or whether it's volleyball courts, whether it's places just for people to sit, whether it's passive active recreation. I, I you know, the world is becoming denser, um, uh, cities are becoming bigger, and if you build facilities, then people tend to use them. Um, and and the, the basis behind that Planet Groovy story was that people like being with people, and I still think that's the case. We, we all want to withdraw into our private space now and then, um, but people like to be with people, whether it's on the waterfront, whether it's at the beach, whether it's at the park, whether it's at the theatre. And um, we were becoming concerned as a society that our kids are spending too much time on PlayStation, you know, on computer games, etc. And that's that's true. Um, I'm worried that COVID is going to reinforce that. We're going to withdraw more into our own private spaces and 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 communicate virtually, like you and like we are right now. Um, and not have the the outside, the open air, the, the life experiences that 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 are community based. So that's my fear. But I think that as humans, we're naturally inquisitive and we like to socialise. So hopefully, once COVID settles down, we'll return to a, a community based sort of social based um, uh, lifestyle. It's funny, isn't it? I know we've spoken on a few other earlier podcasts about some of the impacts of, of COVID and. You know, I've been saying that I've been noticing in particular um, at my local park that it's absolutely chockers. It's crazy. You can hardly walk from A to B without sort of, you know, brushing shoulders with other people. It's been an incredible uh, transformation, I guess I guess you'd say, in terms of um, that social connection and people actually talking to one another. I mean, yes, it's, you know, two metres separated or whatever it, the social distancing amount is at, at any given time, but the the social connection opportunities that it has brought in terms of that open space, in terms of its usability, I think has been really positive. But equally, I can see that depending on what level of lockdown you're in, um, going back into you know a an environment where people are just living in their homes and not leaving because they're scared of health impacts it's a it's a really interesting um, proposition and I'll, I'll be I'll be very intrigued to see how things turn out in the next uh, six 12 months when hopefully this is all over yeah you, you make a really good point because and and we've seen the same in Dubai and we've seen the same in, in Bahrain where um, essentially because indoor gyms and fitness centers have been closed then people have been forced outside um, and and it was really in lockdown, most places were saying, okay, you've got to stay home, you can't go to restaurants, okay, the only thing you can do is go to a supermarket to buy food, or if you want to exercise, you can go out. And um, what we saw here was people were using that. And uh, so they were almost, you know, the streets were being reclaimed by people who were jogging or they were carrying their weights down to the park and, and, and doing a workout at the park. And that's been a really positive thing is to, you know, close close all the private gyms or the, the, the um commercial gyms and get people back out on the street which it's been a really nice side effect um it'll be interesting to see how it un how it unfolds once um once normal 
Yeah, definitely. And, and, and Clark, learning, learning, um, you know, you were sort of touching on sort of world city ideas that there's a sort of a pool of ideas that people are practising across the, across the globe so they can learn different things and then feed them back in to the next project or it's that transmission of ideas. Where do you learn? How do you learn? What do you look for? Yeah, um, good question. Uh, look, I, I use the internet. I know it's crazy, but you know we will be um, we will be looking at the design of a building or something like that, and we'll say, look, you know, we we, we really want this is an area where a green wall would be fantastic, and you know we'll just spend ten minutes googling um, uh, our ideas and and try and come up with uh, what we think might be a solution. So a, a lot of it's just uh, collaboration, you know, either amongst ourselves in the office um, or with our consultants. That I also learn a lot from the consultants. You know, that we had a I had an experience recently where um, the UAE Pavilion at the at the Milan Expo, um, which was again uh, it was designed by Fosters, and it was designed so that we could dismantle it and bring it back to Mazda and rebuild it. And so I ended up going to Milan Expo. And it was fantastic, and, and it made me realise that there are so many smart organisations. You know, the the theme of the expo was food and feeding the world, and there were so many ways. Each pavilion had a demonstration of what their how their country fed their population, and it was a visual pre, uh, presentation, or it was a, a, a proactive something. You know, you had to follow a journey through the pavilion, and you'd do different things. And it made me realise that there's a whole bunch of really smart people all the time thinking about cool ways to express ideas or to express something. And so um, that's become my mode of, of communication and, and design and anything we do. We do some initial research ourselves, try and come up with the ideas and then collaborate with people, whether they're consultants, whether they're other people, do, uh, you know, whether they're uh, other organisations that are doing something similar, whether it's um, designers. Uh, collaboration is the best thing because, it, you know, there's a lot of people with some really good smarts that when put together, you can get a great outcome. And, Clark, what would your advice be to aspiring Australian planners or architects or urban designers? who want to work overseas, any suggestions for them? Um, look, I, I, I'd encourage it. You know, obviously, I, I'm, I'm biased. We're, we've, we've lived and worked overseas for, for quite, quite some time now and it's just such an interesting and engaging experience. Um, you've got to be tolerant uh, and, and you, you've got to be patient. The, um, Working in a multicultural office, and Australia is very multicultural now, anyway. But but even more so overseas, where there's different levels of communication skills, there's different levels of education, uh, there's there's completely different ideas about how things should work out because everyone's influenced by the way they're brought up and the environment that they live in. So it takes uh, a lot of patience, and um, again, there's also in Australia, we're very professional, and um, when you work overseas, you find out there's a lot of people who are not very professional, and that's that can be incredibly frustrating. But the work environment in an international office can be incredibly frustrating, um, just because of the different uh, expectations around professionalism, the different ways to communicate. 
Um, but you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put anyone off because of that. It just it just makes work interesting and and, and challenging. Um, the way to get a job overseas is, you know, if you're going to work internationally, um, generally there is a pretty uh, strong network of recruitment consultants. That's 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 the way these countries work. Whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia, whether it's the Middle East, um, they're bringing in international um, uh, staff to to do roles, and so they tend to operate at a professional level through employment consultants. So, identify identify a location, um, find out who the major players are there in terms of recruitment, and and start to uh, um, communicate with them because these guys are always looking for new CVs. They've, they've always got, these guys make a living out of placing people internationally. And uh, so um, go go through the recruitment consultants, identify who's who's big in a particular region and, and talk to them all. That's the best way to get, get moving. And Clark, is there anything that you miss about Australia? <laughs> oh, we miss Australia so much. I mean, Australia, um, uh, it's family. It's friends, old friends like Pete, who I don't see nearly enough. Um, uh, you miss the normality of Australia. I mean, it's normal because we grow up there and we love it and um, it's just so predictable. Um, we we miss that, you know. Every time we go home to Australia, it's just, you know, it feels like home. I'm still calling it home even though we haven't lived there for a long time. Um, we, we miss it and uh, we just miss the the easygoing nature of Australian people and and the fact that you can ring up and uh, um, but even though you guys will get get possibly frustrated but you can ring up Telstra and there's an Australian answering the phone who can help you. Um, uh, living overseas is is quite often it's it's someone with a different you know of a different nationality whose their English is not great they can barely understand me because I'm talking in a bad Australian accent. Um, so we, we love Australia. Having said that, um, uh, whilst Australia is a fantastic place, and as I said, we we hold our head high in terms of the way we go about things and uh, our work and our sport and all that sort of thing. Living away from Australia, you realise that it can be accused of being a, a, a far removed parochial society, and that. It's not on the radar of a lot of people from America or from Europe who are doing big business. They don't even think um, or consider Australia as relevant to the world, which can be a little hurtful <laughs> when you're from Australia and these these you know some people don't even rate it. So it is it, it, it's interesting to get an international perspective and still say, well, we love Australia. We still think it's relevant. It's a great place to be. But also acknowledge that there's other parts of the world that are interesting. There are other parts of the world that also have a lot to offer, um, and and that's you know that's why we are who we are. We we chose that adventurous path. We wanted to go and explore the rest of the world. But equally, and and um, I completely understand those that say, you know what, I live in the great city which is Melbourne or which is Brisbane or which is Sydney, and I'm really happy here and I'm happy to stay here, uh, and I don't hold any any negative views about that because I understand that as well. You know, I, I dream of the day that I can go back to, you know, South Melbourne or somewhere like that and settle in and, you know, live there happily ever after. Um, but it's just, you know, it's whatever whatever suits you um, at a particular moment in time. Clark, you, you, 
any observations or any suggestions in, in broad terms for Australian cities that you think maybe we could, um, I know it's a very big question, sorry, but sort of things that could be incorporated into Australian cities that you've observed, you know, on your travels and things? Yeah, well, let, let me answer that in a slightly different way. Um, uh, Pete, you and I used to talk about what if we had a zone where there were no controls? What would development look like? And and the answer to that question is um, is what I'm doing right now. You know, some of the projects that I've worked on really didn't have planning controls and we came up with our own ideas. And we're doing a beachfront development at the moment where it's going to be... Uh, uh, a mixed-use, mid-rise development on a waterfront with a you know a range of really interesting um, pedestrian connections and, and and open space opportunities. Um, so I think that if if you, if I was going to be negative about Australia in some way, I'd say that it's over regular. You know, it's over regularized, and and they probably consult the community a little too much. Um, you know, community consultation is important. Protecting people's rights is important. But uh, I think that the cities suffer from um, too much regulation and too much consultation. Um, there's got to be a little more trust in the market and and in the developers. I know that sounds like a strange thing to trust developers. Uh because what I have seen is without those controls and without that um, consultation, you're still getting, there's still some really good outcomes um, being achieved. And in in some areas of Australia, with that regul, you know, regulatory control and with that consultation, you're still getting some pretty poor outcomes. So, um, and the, the negative impact that has is it takes a long time to get from, from you know, an idea or purchasing a a plot of land to the end product and and having the regulations in place and the consultation process just makes it longer, takes takes longer. So I think Australian cities are generally in pretty good shape. Um, obviously, all cities battle with congestions and traffic and hopefully we're going to see some significant changes in that regard over the next decade. Um, but uh, yeah, my one thing would be um, over, over regulate. You know, there's too much regulation controlling development and too much consultation. Your advice to the recent graduates just starting out, um, the job market's getting tough here. What any sort of any, any what would you say to planners just entering the job market? Uh, I would say, you know, take anything you can get. <laughs> um, take anything you can get. Um, I mean, Pete, we're old now. <laughs> it's, 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 we've had long careers now, and um, you do have the opportunity to change your career um, many times through, through uh, you know, over the decades that you'll be working. So my advice is to take any job, just start working, start to understand um, what it is you like about you, the work that you do. Um, in my case, I changed from being a planning consultant to a property developer, and I'm I'm so glad I made that change because um, I enjoyed work a lot more. Um, it's it, it's an easy thing that everyone says, but it is important to enjoy your work. And um, the best thing to do is to start working, start to understand what it is about your job that you like and what it is you don't like, and then go and either retrain or or add to your 
your skills or get different jobs um, and to manipulate your career path to something that you want it to be. Um, but you can't start that journey unless you're uh, in a job. And so just get any job, get, get your CV started and then manipulate your career and work your career from that point. And Clark, now we move to Podcast Extra, um, which is a segment where we ask our guests what they've been watching, listening, hearing. I know you've, you used to be a DJ of some repute. Um, you could have been either a DJ or a, or a planner developer and you, you chose that latter course. What, what's caught your eye of interest lately? Uh, I mean, you know, the uh, the world's changing, isn't it? Uh, Netflix, um, uh, we pretty much don't have free-to-air TV here. So you're pretty much going onto YouTube or onto Netflix or onto some kind of subscription to get your entertainment. And um, uh, believe it or not, I'm still, I'm still listening to a lot of um, Australian music. Obviously, Rufus, I love Rufus. A band called City Calm Down, uh, I'm enjoying. Um, in terms of what am I watching, uh, I'm really lucky in that I can subscribe to, I'm, a, I'm still a member of the Carlton Football Club, which gives me an international subscription. I can watch footy, um, every game of football live, which which I love. Um, and, and like everyone else over COVID, you know, we will become a bit addicted to Netflix, either watching movies or series, that sort of thing. Um, but still, I'm very much, you know, the, the end analysis is I'm still very, very much Australian and I love my sport and I love the Australian music scene and um, that's what... And also, I've also taken to um, listening to podcasts and also listening to audiobooks. I spend a lot of time um, either on my bike or out walking or running listening to audiobooks. Are you still sailing, Clark? Are you still sailing? Yeah, yes. I've just sold my boat. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but there's a pretty there's a pretty strong yacht racing and yacht cruising scene in Dubai. And in fact, I was out um, uh, yesterday for the first time in a long time. And it's 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 a beautiful place to go sailing. Obviously, the water's warm, the weather's great. Um, it is pretty hot at the moment, but. But even still, you can get out on the water and, and have a nice time. The beaches here are really nice as well. Not as good as Australian beaches, but but good enough. And Jess, what what have what have you been up to in your busy life? I've actually just moved house, Pete. So my I guess last two or three weeks have just been um, going through the motions of packing boxes and um, you know working out all utilities and all those boring things. So I think um, what I've noticed though over the last couple of days is my adaptability skills in um, you know working out solutions to uh, minor plumbing issues and um, you know little building projects and gardening and all these other things that I haven't done for a very very long time. So. That's been a bit of fun um, and good to keep myself busy through this COVID period. What suburb are you living in, Jess? I'm in Ascot Vale. Okay, and why did you choose Ascot Vale? What, what's appealing about that suburb? Well, interestingly, like you were saying before about um, having a, you know, everything within um, close proximity, I think this was an area for us that we're close to a train station, we're close to supermarkets, we're close to all the services that we need 20 minutes to the city, 
um, and friends and family not too far away as well. So it's really ticked all the boxes for us. And, and yeah. most importantly, it's very close to uh, Windy Hill. <laughs> that's <some support. laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, and, well, that, you know, that's what we talked about, isn't it? The sense of community, having a community exactly. around you. And I, I think that as the as the world gets, uh, you know, COVID's a, a really interesting experience. But but as the world gets, as Melbourne gets more difficult to um, make your way around, having all of those facilities lo- locally becomes more important, doesn't it? Definitely. What about you, Pete? Oh, well, Jess, I've ordered uh, a little nuke of bees to arrive in about four weeks' time. This is my favourite part of our podcast, can I just say, because I always love the things that Pete um, raises in this in this section because I feel like I always say, oh, you know, I've read a book and I've read this or, you know, just something sort of menial. But Pete always has a really exciting story. <laughs> I'm getting a little nuke of bees, Clark, which is, which is the nucleus of a colony and... You set up your hives next to this nuke, and then the bees tran. You should put the bees after a day or so into your hive, and um, so I did keep bees yeah, for see? a while. And but I'm just getting all my old equipment cleaned and starting books. And I, I can talk about bees all day, Jess. I can bore you senseless and Clark. So they're fascinating creatures, and. Uh, you should um, get a photo of yourself in your in your bee suit, and we'll upload that to the website. I've got, I'm sure I've, our listeners would love I've to see that. I've got two bee suits. Jess, you can come and join Excellent. me. So. <laughs> <laughs> they can be our new portrait shots for our website. Well, it would be flattering for me, Jess. But uh, uh, Clark, it's, it's <laughs> you've been a wonderful, wonderful guest, and um, uh, listeners, we do go back a very, very long time. And Clark's been one of those inspiring people not just a professional but a personal in, in a personal sense as well tremendous friend and uh Clark, we're so glad you, you've come on our little show so thanks for that and um I, I can't wait to catch up in person but thanks jess and thanks clark and thanks listeners to for listening to our podcast in your busy lives and i would remind you that we're part of the urban broadcast collective so have a listen to that and um that's it for today so thanks for listening and thanks clark and thanks jess Thanks, guys. It's been really great to have a chat. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Buck.